Thank you for downloading this episode of Case Notes. Case Notes was recorded at the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh as part of the Edinburgh History of Medicine seminar series. You can get news of our latest events if you follow us on Twitter at RCP Heritage. We hope you enjoy the talk. And I'd like to echo his thanks. Um, I know you've got a lot more exciting stuff going on out there because I walked through a lot of it on the way from Waverley this afternoon. Um, so I do appreciate you giving up such fun to come and hear something. I hope it's not going to be too grim tonight. I mean, there are quite a few laughs and they're not all they're not all dark laughs and it's a really lovely treat for me to return to the college where I spent a most enjoyable week last year just up the stairs in the room there working my way through the fantastic archives of uh, Alexander Morrison which are held here celebrated psychiatrist of the mid 19th century I know you've got another talk in this series about Morrison so I'll restrict myself tonight just later on touching on his role in, um, in my subject tonight of uh, dodgy, iffy or just wrong incarcerations um, and so the idea for what would eventually become my book struck me very suddenly when I went to see a performance of Gaslight. Uh, that's the 1938 play by Patrick Hamilton, which features a Victorian husband attempting to make his highly strung but completely sane wife have a breakdown so that he could have her certified and start a new life with all of her money, his mistress, and some stolen rubies that he believes are secreted somewhere in the marital home. During the performance, I suddenly wondered why it was that the audience didn't need to have the background of this plot device explained to them. Nobody came up on at the start and said, well, the thing you need to know is that a man could easily have his wife put in it. We just knew. It's almost like a sort of ur story, you know, an archetypal tale. That's what fellas can do or could do in the 19th century. And also I thought when I was a little girl, um, I don't know if anybody here is old enough to remember, BBC Two used to have fantastic Hollywood uh, black and white movie double bills on a Saturday afternoon. So you draw the curtains and just indulge in a binge of, of those kind of movies. Um, and so, of course, I watched the old Hollywood uh, version of Gaslight starring... Who? Who is it? Anyone? Ingrid Bergman and... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so I just knew as a child this was a really easy thing for a Victorian husband to be able to do. Nobody needed to explain it to me. So sitting there in this darkened theatre, I suddenly thought, well, what was the mechanism by which an unloved spouse could be declared mad, uh, forgive my terminology, but that is what they called it in the 19th century, when they weren't. Um, how often in reality did this happen? Did it ever happen to men? And it only took me a few days of digging around in the archives before I realized that in fact, certainly in the first 60 years of the 19th century, husbands, fathers, and sons were every bit as likely and possibly more likely to be put away sane into an asylum for the simple reason, um, which when you think about it is blindingly obvious, and I never had thought about it, that men were much more likely to have money. 
The majority of the malicious incarceration cases were a grab for control of cash and control of an ancestral estate. Males inherited uh, more often and they inherited greater sums. Uh, and when a woman married, her husband gained control of all of her money. Larger-than-life Victorians, particularly those with substantial money, property, or a business, could find themselves being portrayed to the authorities as dangerously wayward eccentrics, monomaniacs, suicidal melancholics, sexual deviants, or hopeless dipsomaniacs by those who were keen to grab an inheritance or to gain control of family finances. However, towards the end of the century, certain women seized the issue of, of false incarceration and they successfully bundled it up with the emerging feminist movement. And later on, I'll go on to talk uh, more about that aspect. So let's start by considering some statistics on asylums. It's England and Wales only, I'm afraid. I wasn't able to expand my book to encompass the very in equally interesting Scottish system and, and quite different, different enough. Um, that was for both time reasons. I was really late and I was also way over my word count, so I had to make the brutal decision. No Scots, sorry. I can say that because I am actually ethnically Scottish. So, um, As we can see, um, between 1844 and 1890, there is a massive rise, both in the state system for poor people and over there on the right, the private system um, for the wealthy. And um, this increase across the century was felt at the time to be very alarming. Were the English really getting more insane? Or was the provision from 1845 onwards of huge, new, free-at-the-point-of-use county asylums encouraging families to bring their unhappy uh, family members forward for treatment or for custodial care? Um, the, the asylum system, very strange thing to say, it got better and better as the century wore on, and I think gradually, rather than struggle alone at home, if you don't have much money, you might at, at last just bring your relative or your wife or husband forward. Um, so as you can see, the private sector was far smaller than the public sector, but nevertheless, it also uh, pretty much doubled in size by the end of the century. So in terms of the private asylums, um, in 1845, there were 95 of them in England and Wales, um, but by 1890, uh, that figure had fallen to uh, 58. I just put that picture of Coton Hill up uh, in Staffordshire because it was a brand new, very expensive private asylum built from scratch in the 1860s, which shows a sort of uh, a great confidence that the private system was going to carry on. It wasn't actually demolished until the early 70s where the now notorious um, Stafford, Stafford Hospital that went on to have so many problems about 10 years ago uh, is now on the site. So, as I've mentioned, public care could be could, you could arguably say became more and more attractive across the century. And you do start to see um, in the uh, 1890s, even middle class people who could have afforded somewhere like Coton Hill, starting to make use of some of the um, state asylums that have got a better reputation. Um, also, the 
commissioners in lunacy that Colin mentioned earlier, um, they were perfectly aware of some of the problems that I'm going to talk about now in the private sector. And they got into a lot of trouble for not doing enough, but one of the ways they uh, coped with it was that a sort of gradualism. When an, a private asylum came up to have its license renewed, increasingly they'd be less and less willing to grant a new license. So very, very slowly you start to see the private system falling into comparative disuse uh, for those two push and pull uh, reasons. Um, here, um, it isn't true that once you were put into a Victorian asylum, the gates clang shut behind you forever. It absolutely wasn't. Um, the figures for pauper, poor people um, getting out within a year hold remarkably steady, actually, at about 37 to 39% of admissions. Some of that figure will actually be these um, mainly men. Sorry, chaps, don't wish you to be sexist, but... Um, alcoholism was acknowledged as a massive cause of mental health problems uh, for Victorian men. And so sometimes they were more or less used what we would call a drying out clinic. You go in, you get sober, you get sane, you come out again, gradually you start drinking again and your symptoms come back. So it was a bit of a revolving door for some men. Um, but look at that. Uh, the minute you start paying for your care, suddenly um, only 10 to 14% of you get discharged. And then you compare that to the very wealthiest lunatics, so wealthy that they have to have the uh, Lord Chancellor himself overseeing their estate, and that plummets to just 1%. Now, many mental health campaigners of the day use these figures to prove that wealthy people were being detained for high fees um, that private asylum uh, proprietors received for their care. Other people argued against this, uh, saying that because of the shame of mental illness, the middle and the upper classes tended to wait far too long before calling in the doctors. Um, it was stated before an 1859 parliamentary select committee on the working of the lunacy laws that 70 to 80% of cures occurred when cases had been referred almost as soon as the first symptoms had shown themselves. Um, and at this, at this select committee, celebrated doctors of psychological medicine, that's what they were called uh, in the 19th century till about the 1880s, um, John Connolly and Dr. Daniel Hack Tuke, they both claimed that 77% of people treated within the first three months of um, their first attack were cured and discharged, but that this figure fell to 20% for patients who'd waited one year before admission to an asylum. But then, of course, their opponents in this dispute said, well, you're going to say that, aren't you? Because you are the private doctors who get so, so much money when people are referred quickly. Um, so it never got resolved, and it's probably not resolvable as an argument now. But those figures were what people looked at and drew their own conclusions in terms of um, discharges. So the basic rules uh, for certification of a lunatic um, in the Victorian era, they remain the same pretty much until the end of the century. Firstly, an individual who noted or who claimed they had noted a bizarre change in the usual behavior of a family member, a close friend, or a business associate would approach a medical man. This could be a GP, 
uh, or even someone with a lesser qualification of apothecary, um, no specialist psychiatric training was required for a diagnosis of insanity. Um, that medical man would then need to alert a second physician or apothecary, and each of the two would then have an interview um, with the alleged lunatic wholly separately. They couldn't do it together. They had to separately talk to him or her and come to their own conclusions as to whether any insanity had been exhibited during the interview. If both men, and it was always men in the 19th century, found that the patient was indeed of unsound mind, a rather loose terminology that would go on to cause all sorts of problems, they would sign certificates of lunacy, which together with a written lunacy statement by the individual who had first alerted them to the patient, formed the legal justification for the incarceration of the lunatic into some form of custodial care. Usually this meant the asylum, but many people, the wealthy in particular, opted instead to keep the patient at home with or without a specialist nurse or keeper. But the procedure for certifying a pauper, that is someone who's so poor that they had no way of paying even a proportion of their own asylum bills, featured one highly significant difference. The second lunacy certificate was signed not by a doctor, but by the local magistrate, or if for some reason he wasn't available, um, a respected civic figure such as a clergyman or a poor law officer. It was widely believed that the less corruptibility of a magistrate or other civic non-medical figure who received no payment for his judgment on a person's sanity gave a level of protection to the poor that was not extended to the better off. Um, and so... That's, that, that's why people got the idea that it was the wealthy who were particularly vulnerable to these kind of plots. Um, because that's what lunacy certification meant. It removed your right to engage in legal and business affairs. You couldn't make a will. You couldn't marry. You couldn't administer your own finances. A lunatic became a legal non-entity. And if your ill-wisher wasn't prepared to, you know, hire an assassin to really remove you once and for all, well, the next best, best option was to kick you into touch by certification as a, as a, as a lunatic. Um, in Victorian England, campaigners did find instances where heavy drinking or the uh, misdiagnosis of a febrile disease had caused a pauper to end up in a public um, county asylum, um, and as the huge building program of public asylums began in the mid-1840s, um, you do see a corresponding rise in the certification and institutionalization of dementia sufferers, um, as we call them today. Uh, also of naturals, people um, with what today we call learning difficulties, uh, many or most of whom had previously lived outside of the asylum. But no one had really got much to gain from deliberately miscertifying the poor. And indeed, many parish poor law officials tended not to welcome the cost of institutionalizing a pauper. For the poor, all are interested in their recovery. For the rich, 
all may be interested in their retention. Those are the words of a Gloucestershire magistrate in the late 1840s after a campaign in which he uh, liberated many miscertificated um, private patients um, down in, in the west, west of England. He went in in person, interviewed them all, looked into their case histories and found a huge number of people um, who, who weren't ill at all or who had been ill and were certainly capable of living a life outside. So the commissioners in lunacy, their duties uh, included ensuring that no sane person could ever remain in an asylum. As soon as a patient was received in an institution, copies of their lunacy certificates and the lunacy statement were sent off to the commissioners. Um, they were headquartered uh, close to Whitehall, and they felt they were able to spot any suspicious circumstances or statements in the documentation. However, each of the case studies in my book had reason to believe that the commissioners were either incompetent or were seeing the issue of lunacy through the eyes of doctors and asylum proprietors, not through the eyes of the patient. Um, and so, um, although they would sometimes, you see in the uh, National Archives at Kew, you know, they, they sit, uh, they summons an asylum proprietor to sit down and tell me why that man is there and why have you done this, that and the other. Um, and they do get a rap over their knuckles and they get threatened with license removal. Um, but that rarely happens. As I said before, what you tend to see is they kind of discourage that person from renew, uh, renewing their license the next time around. So when you look at the um, copious records down in Kew at the National Archives, you get this really strong impression that Victorian overwork and diligence was combining fatally with complacency and naivety. The job was done thoroughly by the commissioners, but the job itself appears to have been rubber stamping, glossing over, and just hoping that everything would right itself. Now, as for the doctors themselves, what I found during my research was that any scientific attempt to define and promote normality of behavior failed spectacularly every time that it was tested. And because far from presenting a united and authoritative front, what I stumbled upon was a world of psychological medicine, psychiatry, that was divided and conflicted with the occasionally bitter disputes taking place in the full glare of public and journalistic scorn. Whenever disputed lunacy cases were heard in the courts or during chancery inquisitions, that's for the extremely wealthy um, alleged lunatics, the public were perfectly able to go, and they did, they flocked in, um, and sometimes they just sit in the public gallery, cheering, jeering, stamping, always egging on the alleged lunatic, always on the side of the person who'd had a finger pointed at them. Um, and that kind of, you know, attitude is captured. I've not seen um, this illustrated. It's very hard to find illustrations of this type of thing. But in this 1840 illustration, um, we see, um, I have come across two physical rescues in the street of somebody um, that the madhouse keepers have driven up to get hold of him and take him off. And the public say, no, you're not. No, we, 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 you're not taking someone away. You know, you're not the police. And they grab him. So that's the kind of a humorous, um, the, the hero is uh, grabbed off the street by this very dodgy madhouse keeper there on the left. And there on the right, so he manages to turn the tables. 
And actually, it's the proprietor who gets uh, taken away. And he's shouting at him, no, no, that's the lunatic. You should, you're meant to have grabbed him. So this, this comic novel makes great play of this thing that can happen to you. Um, there were, indeed, certain bogeyman mad doctors, inflexible, wrong-headed, and sometimes, occasionally, just simply financially corrupt. But for the most part, they struck me, uh, I never thought I would say this, as actually rather humble. Um, we, are the, we are in the infancy of our knowledge. Uh, one of the most eminent mad doctors wrote in 1828, George Mann Burroughs. Um, and throughout the century, there were many similarly agonized expressions of the likelihood that it would be for posterity to explain satisfactorily this mystery of madness. They knew they were dealing with something that they hadn't even begun to get a grip on. Um, um, there simply wasn't this monolithic psychiatric establishment eager to claim, for example, that most women were mentally unstable. Though, as we'll see shortly, that's not to say that gendering of mentally illness didn't go on. It certainly did. Um, sadly, Dr. Burroughs um, himself was all too eager to detain people who really didn't need detaining. And two scandalous cases of the late 1820s saw his illustrious career ruined, and the Times newspaper stated as a result, the melancholy fact is that your thoroughgoing mad doctor takes it for granted that hardly anyone is sane. It is the law of England that any one of us may be seized by a pair of ruffians under the warrant of a mad doctor and plunged for life into that hopeless prison which is calculated to, un uh, to unsettle the steadiest intellect. And so the newspaper here is expressing the commonly held fear that if you do place the same person in an insane asylum, it won't be very long before that person does um, start to lose their wits, as we put it. And I think that's the um, idea behind uh, Gaslight. So this is one of my favorite madhouse abduction stories, which I'm aware that's a very strange phrase I've just used, partly because it's got an atypically swift and happy uh, denouement, but also because it has a victim uh, who we today might think of as a bit unusual. Um, the plot was undertaken against an elderly wealthy vicar but in fact, such gents were disproportionately the target of malicious incarceration conspiracies, especially when they were so willful as to wish to marry um, or to make or remake a will. Um, at such moments, relatives could become rattled, suspecting that a large inheritance was about to be diverted. So this is how the front page of the Illustrated Police News told the story of Reverend Kennard, um, the 60-year-old uh, rector of Marnhall, Marnhall in Dorset. He was a widower with eight grown-up children. Um, he'd been intending to marry uh, one Miss Pritchard, but she'd fallen through the ice at Christmas 1879 while skating on the River Stour. Um, so he later fell in love with the German governess of a wealthy family, 40-year-old um, Miss Bade. Um, so on the 13th of September 1881, the Reverend arrived at the Castle Hotel in Woodford in Essex, one day ahead of his marriage to Miss Bade, and when three gentlemen turned up in a carriage, they told him they were there to take him to Woodford Parish Church to check the details of the next day's ceremony. But after a short time in the carriage, he realized he was being driven to London instead. Uh, he called to the men who told him to shut up 
if he valued his life. Um, He shouted and threw his hat out of the carriage in order to alert passers-by, but no one responded. The carriage arrived at a cheap lodging house at 41 Hunter Street near King's Cross, and Reverend Kennard was locked in a room, given a meal, and told that the doctor would come along the next morning to certify him. Meanwhile, the bride was standing at the church, and the reception was waiting at the Castle Hotel, but the vicar didn't turn up, and no one could understand his non-appearance, and Miss Bade fainted in the church porch with the shock of it all. Um, the conspirators should have checked the reverend's pockets. Um, he had a great deal of cash on him. And the next morning, he offered a considerable sum to the man who'd been sent to watch over him before the doctors were supposed to arrive. The cash was accepted, and Reverend Kennard walked out of the front door into a handsome cab, and then by Great Eastern Railway to Woodford. And the reunited couple walked up the aisle the next day and went on to honeymoon at Windsor. Um, so, you know, it's, it's real life and it looks, you know, quite fun. Um, so that's one of the nicer stories. Um, so the likely perpetrator of the plot was kept under surveillance by the police, but they were unable to take action unless the vicar was willing to come back to London to make a formal charge against this person. And uh, Reverend Kennard was unwilling to do so. Um, it's highly likely, nobody ever said so, but it's highly likely it was one of his grown-up children. Um, And so um, perhaps through Christian charity, he just decided to just let it go. So some of you might be wondering why by this stage I haven't mentioned one of the most infamous categories of wrongly incarcerated people, young women who gave birth to an illegitimate child. Um, many, uh, many of us have in our family trees a great-grandmother, great-great-aunt, and so on, who was put away for getting pregnant. But in fact, that phenomenon belongs to the 20th century, not the 19th. And the confusions come about because of two things, um, I think. Firstly, the idea that the Victorians were any more likely to be morally offended by unmarried motherhood than people were in the first half of the 20th century. And secondly, the fact um, that the Victorian asylum as a physical construct continued to be in use right the way through to the 1980s and the landmark legislation that um, emptied the psychiatric wards. Um, So between 1845 and 1860, there was a huge national program of public asylum construction. And the designers of these complexes would, for the most part, if we could sit them down today and question them, I think they would claim that they'd been seeking a humanitarian place for the mentally troubled. Um, And what we today see as terrifying, gloomy, forbidding places, I could have chosen any, but that one struck me as one of the most forbidding looking. Um, I think in the architect's mind, they were seeing them as sumptuous, spacious, orderly buildings in which the best care for insane paupers could be given. And we must remember that these county asylums built in every county in England and Wales were paid for out of the public purse. And that's an extraordinary outlay in the era of laissez-faire small state. And it's 100 years ahead of the creation of the NHS. 
free at the point of the use hospitals for mental illness, they came into being. While working people who were suffering a physical illness, they still had to rely on a ramshackle collection of charitable or poor law institutions in order to obtain treatment. And with regard to illegitimate children, it was the local parish in the 19th century that was responsible for the welfare payments to the poor, a significant proportion of whom were unmarried mothers and their offspring. Payments to them from public money were hugely resented, and the workhouse was the most punitive but also the cheapest form of welfare for single mothers. The county lunatic asylum, by contrast, was an expensive place for the parish to lodge someone, even when the parish obtained some help for these costs from the central government. Um, no parish welcomed the expense of placing a pauper within the asylum if uh, she or he could be placed into uh, a workhouse or kept at home on what was uh, called outdoor relief payments where you didn't need to go into the workhouse. So for that reason alone, the Victorians did not wholesale place single mothers into lunatic asylums. It was simply too expensive an option. In fact, it was the 1913 Mental Deficiency Act, so it's an early 20th century act um, that saw the start of the institutionalization of unmarried mothers along with other types of supposed juvenile delinquents on the grounds, and I'm going to have to use a horrible uh, Edwardian phrase I'm afraid, uh, on the grounds that they were moral defectives. Um, the fear was that if you allowed such people to breed they would overwhelm the non-defective British population. So it's a folk myth that the Victorians put into lunatic asylums the sexually wayward. Instead, it was the doctors and the administrators of the 20th century who were misusing the institutions of the former age. If we just nip back to the wealthy elites, in the National Archives is this tantalizing volume, uh, the ledger of the private committee that oversaw the lunacy cases of the very wealthiest. It was opened in 1828 and then abandoned in 1832. It was reinstated in 1845 and then it fell into disuse just 18 months later. Um, this was a highly controversial area of lunacy administration as it dealt with the affairs of the nation's elite lunatics or alleged lunatics. So that's the aristocracy or the landed gentry who were either being cared for in the family home or lodged in private domestic space as a so-called single patient. Um, only Lord Shaftesbury himself, he was the head of the Lunacy Commission for most of the second half of the 19th century, um, the Home Secretary, the Lord Chancellor, and two lunacy commissioners, one medical and one legal, were permitted to peruse this list of single patients and the details of their cases. That's how exclusive it was. Um, so it's really weird when you, you know, in 2012, get to sit down and read the secrets of the rich and famous. Um, so the commissioners were already pledged to total secrecy and discretion in their work, and this private register brought an even more secretive aspect it also brought a massive new workload for the already overstretched commissioners in lunacy. And it soon became clear that this new arrangement just didn't work. There simply weren't enough staff at the commission. Um, and the single patients were scattered all over the country, uh, making 
um, statutory annual visits to them very difficult indeed. Um, and besides, there was huge underreporting of home-based lunatics. Uh, Lord Shaftesbury knew that the aristocracy were simply not even telling him who they had in the attic, who they had in an outbuilding, that sort of thing. Um, he, he knew that this was he's not even scratching the surface. Um, so this furtive nature of the register had been devised to allay fears among the governing classes um, of public exposure of their private tragedies. And in fact, it had been a sop to the House of Lords, which had repeatedly rejected lunacy amendment bills um, that contained a clause requiring the inspection of single patients. Um, so that was the trade-off, and it just didn't work. So two of the century's biggest names in psychological medicine, Alexander Sutherland and Sir Alexander Morrison, routinely failed to register their many single patients with the commissioners. Um, abusive attendants blacklisted at asylums were often employed to guard wealthy single patients. So people who you wouldn't have working in the state system, well, that's okay. They, they can, you hire them to look after your relative upstairs. Um, and, and drugging and bleeding and head shaving appear to have been carried on against rich single patients, many of whom have been confined on the mere say-so of um, parents or siblings and so on. Dr. James Crichton Brown was one of the three Lord Chancellor's visitors in lunacy, who in 1877 inspected the 336 chancery lunatics in single care. Um, a further 676 were in, were in the asylum system. And among the cruelties he uncovered were a woman tied to a chair by a rope, uh, another shut into a darkened room for three months, and he witnessed wealthy patients being brought into asylums from home care with broken bones, the marks of flogging upon them, covered in bruises, sometimes delivered to the asylum in ropes or um, straitjackets. Um, and Crichton Brown believed that greed and neglect were much more likely to pass undetected in the private home, even within a family, than they were in an asylum. So an expensive single house overseen by a top doctor ought to have been the best lunacy care possible in the 19th century. Um, but it seems that abuses in this, in this sector went on defiance of the inspector. So it's all the wrong way around. We see the Victorian asylum as a place of cruelty and neglect and barbarity. But on the ground, um, many um, asylum doc, uh, superintendents in the public sector said you wouldn't believe what we see going on in these private homes with these unregistered attendants. So I must stress that Sir Alexander Morrison was never himself accused of permit, commit, permitting neglect or cruelty of his single patients. Um, his archives, just up there, um, they are absolutely invaluable, possibly unique. I haven't quite I'm not quite sure that they are unique, but I've not seen it elsewhere. Record of his working life. He wrote a diary entry every day between 1807 and 1866. Um, so he notes his working life and his patient notes of a doctor dealing with single patients. If you're in an asylum, 
you know, the asylum superintendent has to, you know, he's legally obliged to keep case notes. That's not the case with single patients, and Alice, um, Alexander Morrison uh, writes them. So just as a, here's a few brief snap, snapshots from his daily diaries um, of, of these men and women who are detained in very lovely surroundings, very comfortable rooms in such well-heeled districts uh, of London as St. John's Wood, Bloomsbury, and Bayswater. So August the 1st, 1840, saw Miss Darby. She sat on the sofa with me and worked a little square of work for her mother, was quiet, silent, but answered yes or no to several questions. She, however, said they are all dead, referring to her mother. 9th of September, 1840, Miss Pilar is distressed by obscene voices, appetite much impaired. Saw Miss Harvey at 47 Euston Square, Appearance of her back much improved, still some swelling of muscles on the right side. She is to learn drawing. 23rd of May, 1842. Mr. Trimmer, still maniacal, pulse soft and natural in frequency. 13th of March, 1847. Came to London with Mr. Baldwin. Visited Miss Nancy Harram, rather feeble, rather feeble, pulse 100. Keeps her hands joined as if in prayer. 31st of March, 1847, saw Mr. Harrison Sr. of Bayswater and signed Certificate of Insanity, incoherent, confused, violent and squandering money and appears much exhausted. So back to this um, fight for freedom. I mentioned earlier that lunacy became a feminist issue in the second half of the 19th century. And one of the reasons I think that in the 20th century, and now in the 21st, we began to assume that husbands locked up wives and daughters is that it's the women's stories that have endured and give us, I think, a skewed view of the subject today. Also, very powerfully, in fiction, two novels that have never been out of print. We all still read them. Um, the woman in white seen here, and then and Jane Eyre with that deeply unsettling notion of Mrs. Rochester, who is genuinely unwell in the book, um, locked away seemingly at the whim of her husband in the attic of Thornfield Hall. So from the late 1850s, you start to see the coming together of articulate critics of the various legal and social measures that constricted female freedom, the property laws that I've already mentioned, that deemed a, deemed a wife's money to be under the control of her husband, a husband's total control over her body, both sexually and in the form of habeas corpus. She had to live with him unless she could prove uh, serious and ongoing violence. Um, the English wife had no separate legal identity from her husband, and so she wasn't able to mount a civil case or enter into any type of, type of contract. Um, marriage entirely changed a female's status in the eyes of the law. And the image of the wrongly certified wife was all of a piece with all the other genuine restrictions placed on Victorian wives. The first of the major women's lunacy conspiracy stories is that of Rosina Bulwer-Lytton. Um, Sir Edward Bulwer-Lytton, on the right there, was one of the wealthiest and best-known men in England. He was a hugely successful novelist. He gave us Twas a Dark and Stormy Night, along with lots of other things. Uh, a playwright. He was an MP, very senior MP, statesman, 
man of fashion, uh, inheritor of Nebworth House. And in 1827, he married beautiful and viciously witty Rosina Wheeler. But within five years, his promiscuity and violence caused the couple to separate. Infuriated by his meagre and late alimony payments, Rosina embarked on a series of hilarious public humiliations for Sir Edward. She often made that it was a newspaper, often had a newspaper reporter alerted to come and see what she was up to next. Um, and she was an absolute genius of the comedy put down, and her dialogue uh, is absolutely brilliant. Um, so in response, Sir Edward lent upon his two very good friends at the Lunacy Commission. Um, Lord Shaftesbury himself, the head of the commission, and John Forster, better known to us as Dickens's best friend and biographer. So these men, whose job it was to ensure that no sane person ever ended up in an asylum, conspired. It's all there. I was going to say on paper, it's actually on microfilm, at Hartford local record office. Nobody seems to have gone through it, but there they are, just talking memos between each other. How are we going to cook this one up? It's just extraordinary. Um, they conspired to see that Rosina was silenced for good in the luxurious asylum White House uh, in Brentford in Middlesex. And the ensuing public furore gripped the nation um, uh, in, the, in the summer of 1858. And it threatened several illustrious careers. It never actually did really get out but it's all still sitting there on microfilm, the damning evidence. Um, and the Lytton saga became known as the worst marriage in England. So following Lady Lytton's release, uh, the following letter was sent to the newspapers um, entitled, From a Happy Wife Who Pities a Persecuted One. And it's almost certainly by her. Um, she did her own PR. My proposal is that women should for once show their esprit de corps in which they are usually so lamentably deficient as to countenance and even admire the very men who trample on all social and family duties and enter into a penny subscription throughout the length and breadth of England in order to enable, enable Lady Bulwer-Lytton to obtain legal redress for the false imprisonment of the very worst sort. Let no pennies be levied on the labouring classes... Neither let us ask aid from the higher classes who look on and smile at fashionable delinquencies, but that let the middle class women unite to show a sense of their sister's wrongs. So you really see her there spotting that this is a woman issue, this is a woman problem. An agitation for full property and civil law rights for married women was well underway at this time, despite the persistent blocking of such moves by the dear old House of Lords. The Commons were not just in women's rights, but were perfectly willing to pass all sorts of legislation that we would consider progressive. It gets to the Lords, no. And, and it's just amazing how much, how England would have been different in the 19th century had there been no House of Lords. Uh, but there you go, that's another lecture, I think. Um, so 10 years after Rosina Bulwer-Lytton's case um, comes the story of Louisa Lowe. She was a vicar's wife who became a spiritualist. She was very unhappy. She felt traditional Christianity wasn't satisfying enough, not meaningful enough. And so she becomes a spiritualist and she starts to do automatic writing. You know, you just let your hand write what it wants. And unfortunately, when she looks down, uh, the messages from beyond um, tell her that her husband was an adulterer and he was also possibly even a child molester. 
he gets her put away at PDQ in Brislington House Asylum near Bristol. Um, but she eventually, she fought back and she won her freedom. And in 1873, she founded the Lunacy Law Reform Association, a campaign body. And um, she comes up with the most fantastic, detailed, almost like a white paper of, of just, just completely overturn the lunacy administration, how it's done in England, and let's do this system instead. And it's amazingly foresighted. That'd be a nice little project for somebody to go through Louisa Lowe's proposals and, and see if there's something that we can learn from it. Obviously, she got nowhere. But in her inaugural speech, Mrs. Lowe addressed this inability to mount a civil case against her wrongdoers because she was a married woman. Furthermore, she said, women were more afraid of scandal and, and, and so were, were less likely to publicise such a wrongdoing when they were released from certification. Having said that, the, the, the cases subsequently brought to her attention, to the attention of the Lunacy Law Reform Association, didn't suggest a gender bias in the problem of doubtful certification. The ratio of these is 14 males to 10 females. So she ended up doing an awful lot of casework for men. So one of the people who turned to Mrs. Lowe for help was this extraordinary woman, uh, Georgina Weldon. So when in 1878, uh, she's very eccentric, very colorful, um, very energetic woman, um, but in 1878, Mr. Weldon decides that he finds her antics too embarrassing. Uh, and her request for alimony too high, despite the fact that she was the person who brought the money to the marriage. He attempted to have her shut in a West London asylum. Uh, there was a very unseemly chase throughout her large Bloomsbury mansion involving asylum staff, policemen, servants, well-wishers. I see it as a sort of, for those of you old enough, a sort of Benny Hill kind of... And then she dashes out into the street, into a handsome cab, and she escapes... She went on to mount 17 lawsuits against all the parties involved, acting as her own solicitor and barrister, absolutely unheard of for a woman. And the reason she was able to do this was because, um, because of the passing of the 1882 Married Women's Property Act. At last we got it through the law, you know, the Lord's... I don't know how, but they were forced to, all right then. Uh, and this permitted a wife to institute civil proceedings in her own name. Uh, when she was in court, the street outside would be filled with those who'd failed to find a seat in the public gallery, cheering her on her way in and out of the building, throwing flowers, you know, chanting her name. Um, her trials were absolutely the best show in town, and even Lord Tennyson was spotting, having to elbow his way to a seat in the public gallery. He was very interested in the Weldon case. And in this way, massively charismatic figure, uh, she was also uh, a light opera singer uh, and musician, and she, she sang her own music songs. She made songs about, about what she'd been through and sang them on the London stage. And she won over the public, the newspapers, judges, and eventually parliamentarians who passed the 1890 Lunacy Act following the brouhaha that she had caused. And this act, um, by bringing the figure of the magistrate into the matter, ended the exclusive power of doctors to decide on asylum incarceration. So at long last, the rich get the rights that the poor have been enjoying. Um, so some 17,000 people rallied to Mrs. Weldon's cause in Hyde Park, and she became one of the most famous figures of the day. Um, she was a superstar in a fight against all sorts of fin de siècle social injustices. Uh, and she was so famous 
that product endorsement, uh, such as the Pears advert here, earned her plenty of money. She paid sandwich board men emblazoned with the word body snatcher to march up and down all day outside the Cavendish Square home of Dr. Littleton Forbes Winslow, who'd been the chief signatory to her asylum incarceration. She hitched a flight with a cloud photographer called Mr. Small on his ascent from Hastings in a hot air balloon so that she could scatter leaflets about her case across the entire south coast. And I'm wondering whether in Kind Hearts and Coronets that's where they get the idea for Lady Agatha and her suffrage posters from a hot air balloon. So on that slightly more positive note, I'll come to an end and I'll be happy to try and uh, answer any questions that you might have. Thank you for listening to our History of Medicine lecture series, Case Notes. This podcast has been brought to you by the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. We're a charity, and if you enjoyed today's show, head over to rcpe.ac.uk backslash heritage for more information and how to donate. Thank you.